Hello and welcome to another episode of Love and Citizenship. Thank you for joining us for another episode and thank you for being patient with this one. I am re-recording the intro because kind of editing and cutting the old one feels a bit disingenuous and also to kind of better explain why this episode is delayed by 48 hours, which I know isn't that big a deal, but I'm a stickler for punctuality. And just in terms of, you know, the hosting platform had server issues on their end and couldn't get the episodes out on time, but it's just a little bit delayed. But I think it'll be one of those episodes that I could say it has been well worth the wait. And not only because I have a lot of love and respect for our guest today, but also I just think the conversations that we have today and the the nature, the underlying kind of, if I could pin and say the underlying anxiety in terms of what's been a focal discussion of this episode has been about that capacity to bear uncertainty and show up day after day. And I think that is something that we do really cover in this episode. Our guest today is Mikhail Sen. I have the privilege of calling Mikhail a friend. And we met at this point, I want to say, two years ago at a picnic that one of our mutual friends had organized. And, you know, we just completely hit it off, had this string of like kind of the connectedness of being young brown men in London. But just the conversations we had and that connection that I felt, I was just like, God, Mikhail, somebody that I'd really like to know. And then when I was doing production work for this episode, Mikhail was one of the first people that I ever thought about because I think a lot of the conversation that we had had on Hampstead Heath at that picnic felt like it would be a good fit on the podcast. And as I say this, I am mindful that I may be coming across as somebody who just wants everybody to know on a podcast. But if that were true, I would just say that I'm really, really lucky to be surrounded by incredible people. And God, I cannot tell you how grateful that I am that we've had this conversation. I would have done a whole intro about Mikhail's IMDb page, but Mikhail's an actor, Mikhail's a writer, Mikhail's a all-around brilliant creative, but also an all-around wonderful human being. And it's my privilege to say that he has been a guest on this episode and on this podcast. I don't want to keep you any longer than I already have from this episode. So without further wait, allow me to introduce and make way for my incredible friend, an incredible, incredible creative, and just a star of a human being, the wonderful, the delightful Mikhail Sen. Oh, thank you for that introduction. No, it was, it was delightful. And um, it was, I still remember that conversation, actually. And I also remember you bringing out your guitar and <laughs> singing uh, in the middle of the heat and everyone sort of stopped to watch. And um, yeah, it was, it was fantastic. I, I'm, that, that was very, very special. But yeah, no, introducing myself. I'm an actor. I'm also an avid reader, I suppose. I like, I like books. I like stories. So I sort of see myself as more than an actor. And especially in the last few years, I think I'd like to describe myself as a storyteller. And I've started writing as well. I am also a keen cricketer, but now I only play on Sundays. But it's a very important part of who I am because I wanted to be a cricketer before I wanted to be an actor. And I've kind of rediscovered cricket in the last sort of 10 years because I stopped playing after school. You, you mentioned wanting to be a cricketer first and then finding your way into acting. How, how, how did you go about becoming an actor? 
So both my parents did a little bit of theater growing up, but that wasn't their, their mainstay. That, they had other jobs, uh, which they did nine to five, and then they rehearsed in the evening. And I'm an only child and they couldn't leave me anywhere. So yeah. they had to kind of take me to rehearsals. And that was where I kind of was exposed to all these crazy eccentric people putting on voices and, uh, you know, being other people and doing crazy things and um, also had like insane sense of humors and big laughs. They were big personalities. And I think for me, that was like an eye opener, even though it perhaps came in less consciously than, than I thought. But I think I always felt more alive just being in their presence. And I was very good at learning lines and I would always tell them off when they forgot their lines. So I think uh, <laughs> I, I kind of knew the play backwards uh, yeah. and I would be tasked with, you know, being the prompter or, you know, rearranging the furniture and stuff like that. But the first time I was on stage, I think I played the cockroach in a play called The Insect Play. Okay. Uh, great casting. Because uh, at age five, I looked very much like a, a cockroach. <laughs> Had this big mop of hair and... Uh, Could survive the nuclear winter though. So. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So that, that was the thing. All the insects die and it was like my one moment to shine where I live and everyone else is dead. So I come running on at the end of the play and uh, climb on top of all of them and then I die. But it's like the cockroach survives. <laughs> so, but um, so it's like a Shakespearean tragedy about insects. Yeah, it was a bit like I was five, and I I think my parents wanted me to do a theatre workshop mm-hmm. because they wanted some time off, I guess, and uh, it was summer holidays or something like that. So so I did the workshop, and I was I, I liked the workshop, but I you know I didn't know if it was for me. I you know it was a bit. You know, I was the youngest person at this workshop, but the the last day was the the performance for all the kids and all yeah. the parents. But yeah, so I think that moment of coming, of running on stage, I genuinely felt both fear and an immense amount of exhilaration and I guess adrenaline, which I didn't know, but it was this feeling, I think, that was so intense. And it was almost like my legs stopped because I I was too scared to, for the big moment. But the minute I did it and then the play ended and then everyone was clapping and screaming and everyone's really happy. Mm-hmm. That for me was like the most rewarding feeling I'd had, I think, aged five, because it was almost like appreciation. It was affirmation. It was, you know, it was like, oh, my God, you were amazing. You know, all of this, this yeah. stuff, because you also it's the overcoming of the fear. Yeah. So the challenge. And I think that's what I think really got me as a five year old. And I never admitted that I wanted to be an actor. Mm. For a long, long time. I think secretly, you know, watching TV, watching movies, I would go, oh, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio would be the person I'd want to be in, you know, the Titanic or whatever, Jack Dawson or yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah. But I'd then go, oh, you're not, in, you're not in America and you're not white. So chances are you probably wouldn't. And even at like age eight, nine, I would probably have this conversation in my head. And then I think growing up in India, you are automatically, whether you like it or not, given maybe a handful of options in terms of what do you want to be when you grow up? A doctor, a rocket scientist, an engineer, yeah. you know, like, yeah. you know, rocket scientist is lawyer. A, bit, a bit, bit, yeah, a bit yeah. out there. But and if you feel lucky, you get that option. But it's lawyer, doctor, engineer, right? Those are the, those are the choices. And I think in some ways, again, you're, you're conditioned to believe that those are the avenues you have. Yeah. So for me, it was, it was always there at the back of my head. But then I thought, you know what, what about a cricketer? Because I was actually very good at cricket okay. growing up. And I used to play with my grandfather and I got better and I got better. And I, 
I wound up captaining my school and stuff like that. But I really, and you know, a cricketer is very respectable in India because, yeah. you know, if you can make it as a cricketer, all the girls want you, all yeah. the boys want you, everyone wants you. Uh, You've got Rishthas coming in by yeah, the buffalo. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so it's it's like, you know, you're one of the boys and you, you, you it's it's a great, it's a great career path if you could, if you're good enough. And mm-hmm. the truth is, you're, you know, I wasn't probably as good as the, as the Virat Kohli's and the Ravi Chandra Rashwins and, you know, whoever. But it was, it was definitely an excite. like sport became very quickly who I was. And I used to eat, sleep, you know, breathe cricket till I was maybe 14, 15. And I, 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 you know, I almost made it to the state team. And there were, there were lots of, lots of opportunities and I was doing very well. But I think also the whole, because I didn't make it, I decided to maybe drop it, which was in some respects, I'm, I'm no, I don't have any regrets, but I, I do wonder sometimes if I had gone down the cricket route, what, what would have happened. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but yeah, so I only came back to acting much, much later. Yeah. Something else, though, that was a feature of the conversation we were having about a year ago now. But also, I think, I think the, this, this exact version of some version of this conversation was what basically made me go, ooh, Nikhal's a guy I'd like to know. Because something we talked about was you're an actor, but you're not acting in Bollywood. Mm. You very consciously made the decision of being in the UK. And something, you know, something you said there, which is you used to look at characters, Leonardo DiCaprio used to play, and you're like, oh, but I'm not white. Mm. So you've, you've decided you've acting is something you're interested in. Talk us through that journey of pursuing acting. And then the kind of, I imagine a lot of walls being hit in your face of like, oh, this is a role not suited for a person Mm. that looks like you. Take us through how that journey of like now actively, you know, being a professional actor begins and what's that like for you? So I went to university and I did history and I wound up directing my first play and acting in a load of plays through university. And I really loved doing that. And there was no pressure. It was just, you know, theater society stuff. And, um, and the history kind of took a back seat. And when I came out of university, I realized I didn't know what to do with myself because I could have gone down several paths. I mean, I, wasn't, I knew I wasn't going to become a historian, um, but I did want to explore. And I sort of listed the things that I was interested in. And acting was up there. So I took a year out and I, I did a, a theater residency in the UK for a couple of weeks someone called Anna Helena McLean, uh, which was like physical theater. And there was another guy from, from Delhi called Anirudh Nair, who was a mentor at the, at the time. And, and because of Rudy, I came over and I found out about it. Mm-hmm. And that was amazing. That was a really exciting two or three weeks. I can't remember how long, but it was 2012 and, and it was fantastic. And then after that, I got an internship at NDTV because I could see myself being a journalist and mm-hmm. the idea of reporting and, you know, being a newsreader and moderating debates. That's, there's an element of performance there, but it's more stable. You know, it's, it's a d- daily kind of grind. But when I went to NDTV and I did, I worked at the sports desk and then I, and I covered the 2012 Olympics at that point. And I also then moved to the, new, the news desk as well. I started you know, at the very, very bottom. It was an internship. I was bringing people coffee. I was, you know, writing scripts, building rundowns, but I knew that it would be at least two or three years before I'd even get a look in to be a reporter because it was, one, it was very competitive, but two, it was just a lot of very jaded people actually in the media. And I sort of looked around me and I was, you know, this 21 year old kid. And I, and I thought, 
do I want to end up like that in 20 years where everyone just seems really jaded and faded and, you know, not really interested in what they're doing and perhaps a bit, you know, disillusioned by the whole system. And politics has always been a part of my life. And I think that was the other draw, the fact that I'd be engaging with, you know, the politics of of our country, uh, of India. Anyway, so then I moved to arts management and I, I, I realized, I, I mean, I kind of got an offer, but I didn't. So I said no to NDTV. That was not what I wanted to do. Basically, I was up at six o'clock in the morning covering the London, London Olympics, pulling an all-nighter. I hadn't slept and I was like sitting in front of this computer and I thought, God, is this really what I want to do with my life? And I was dreaming about acting while I was like, you know, so I was like, why not do it? And if all else fails, you can come back and do this. Yeah. And that was the kind of thought process in my head. Uh, so I actually went to a drama school in Mumbai in 2013 after doing another job for about eight months in arts management, worked with Teamwork Productions. Sean Joe Roy gave me that job. And I got to meet lots of really exciting, interesting people. But it, again, it was logistics and production and the behind the scenes stuff. And I really miss being in the spotlight. Uh, perhaps that's my ego. But <laughs> <laughs> hey, Listen, but I genuinely believe as artists... At some level, there is a part of you that desires to be seen and seen for not just your artistic capacity, but also for you. And I think that's absolutely natural. Yeah, no, absolutely. So uh, they, so teamwork put up with me for eight months, but then I, I was like, I can't really do that. I'm terrible at this one. I'm not very good at, you know, when all, the thing about production is when things go wrong, they actually, no, everything does go wrong. Okay. It's not even like Murphy's Law or whatever. It's like chances are if you're organizing something, something will go wrong. And I'm terrible at like organizing anyway. So um, I remember going on this, this Bukwala tour. We had like three Australian authors who'd come to to India and they were going from Litfest to Litfest. So we started in Bombay, we wound up going to Goa, then we went to Bangalore, then we went to Chennai, ended up in Pondicherry. And they decided to cart along like these six massive bookcases that were built in Australia. But with not just just empty, they had books in them. Like, okay. and I'm not talking like 500. I'm talking like 5,000. Oh, so they Jesus. were like, they've managed to put all these books in, and they were going to donate to a library, a very noble cause, and uh, it was great fun. It was fantastic. Except they wanted to travel by train, so we had to sit. So we we traveled uh, with these three authors from India, three author, authors from from um, from Australia, and uh, by train, and we wound up in Goa, and Goa went really well. But from Goa to Bangalore, apparently the bookcases couldn't be with us. They had to be on the, um, the kind of uh, luggage compartment. Okay. So we, so we left it in the luggage compartment. And when we came back, it wound up being dripping. It, 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 was, it wound up like absolutely like covered in fish water, like fish smelling water. So obviously there was loads of fish that was being transported from one city. Mm-hmm. And then we wound up losing the bookcases in the process. And then I had to like take it by car. We found the bookcases. It had to be delivered to us. It was all a nightmare, basically. Yeah. Uh, one of the cases was left in the hotel. <laughs> this is all down to me. This was my responsibility. All I had to do was look after these people and look after these six bookcases. Yeah. But that was too much. Uh, so I think at that point, I was like, I need to do what I really love. Yeah. And that's act. Because I know I'm fairly good at that. Okay. And I believe that I, you know, would, would be. Mm-hmm. So I applied to drama school, went to a drama school in Mumbai, uh, for six months, it was like their first year and they were testing the waters and it was great. It was really good. And I lived in Mumbai for a year and it was, it was a really interesting year because I kind of 
did go the Bollywood. I tried because that was the only way in, really. I wasn't dreaming about the UK at that point, though I knew my my desire to be an actor in Hollywood was very much at the core of what I wanted. I was obviously going to try the safer route, which was go through India, see if I get picked up by Bollywood, see if there was any interest from there, and then hopefully get noticed by, you know, the West. But it finished, and I remember having to go to audition after audition, and it was so painful, but also I'm actually really grateful because I think it taught me resilience and it taught me the power of rejection Mm -hmm. Uh, because that's something you just have to face as an actor. No's will come your way all the time and many, many more times than, than the yes. So I remember going from studio to studio in Andheri, Saat Bangla, Char Bangla, like going basically without knowing what I was auditioning for. Okay. And they just look at you. They wouldn't give you a script or anything. And there were like loads of us, um, maybe 40, 50 people. And they'd say, fit, not fit, no, not fit. You know, and you just have to walk away. And sometimes they were like, no, do black, you know, that kind of thing Jeez. to your face. And it also like came down to the skin color. And then, you know, you sort of kind of figure out that, you know, you're not good enough, obviously, but it, it's down to how you look as opposed to your innate ability, which I think is important to be judged on. And it's hard because it is a superficial in- industry and you come to learn that here, there, anywhere. But it's, it's, it's hard to take it so, when it's so direct. And I think that's also changed. This was way back in 2014, I think. So I wound up doing a master's at a drama school in London called Drama Center, uh, which was brilliant. And um, I wound up getting an agent, but I couldn't get a, a, the visa to work here. So I had to move back. And I sort of lived off the kindness of strangers and friends, really. Uh, slept on people's sofas, you know, moved around, did a play with Alec Padamsi, the late Alec Padamsi, who's quite a big director, uh, playing the lead, and wound up getting a Bollywood musical that was traveling to America called Taj Express. It was the most amazing Bollywood musical uh, extravaganza. I'd, luckily, I didn't have to sing or dance, which was uh, probably good for the show. Okay. But, <laughs> but uh, uh, it was 64 shows in 53 cities in 85 days. It was the most in, insane kind of process, but it was, it was lovely. It was really exciting. It was this big group of us, and I got to see a lot of America. Off the back of that, I managed to get a talent visa, which brought me to the UK. Mm-hmm. But again, I feel like if all of this hadn't happened, none of this would have happened in a sense. Because it, in retrospect, I do see some kind of design and the hardship and the, the, the rejection and the feelings of insecurity and, and, and not feeling like you're good enough kind of in some ways prepares you for the, the bigger picture, which is you're going to get that all the time. It's how you deal with it. That's, that's what you need to kind of work on, I think. There's something so like, as you were saying it, I was immediately kind of quite taken by and quite struck with the, you know, almost like standing in a file and being rejected. Like at some point, it, it to me, it seems like diminishing the individuality and the person you are. It's just like, nope, nope, yes, nope. It's like swiping essentially, mm-hmm. right? And having that journey and committing, I, I think it takes such like... It takes the strength and character to plunge into the, I don't know, the unknown, really, and not knowing how it's going to be or what it's going to look like, but to have the belief in your capacity to, you know, in your talent, in your art, but also, like, I want to try this. I What I'm really curious about, and I'm glad you're where you are, and I'm glad you're in a place where, you know, you can 
not only find work in the UK, but you seem to have come to have this relationship with rejection and with, you know, this is part of the thing. But what I'm curious about is what was it like? Or was there times when you were like, you know what, acting, you know, it's it's a fever dream. It's not going to work out. Or like, I maybe need to check in with reality and maybe, you know, go back to NDTV or those kind of. Mm. I think you always have days where you you sort of wonder if this will ever be the big thing you always imagined it to be. And and I think that's normal. I think, you know, everyone has those days where you kind of, I don't know if I've ever wanted to give up, give up. I think I've, I'll always be an actor. I might do other things along the way. And I think that's where the writing kind of came in because Taj Express and all that and everything was great. And I landed up in the UK with this visa. And I thought, bloody hell, I've got an, got an agent, got a visa. You know, it's, it was called a, an exceptional talent visa. And I was told Rihanna had the same one. So I was like, yeah, if Rihanna's got it. You yeah. know, we're uh, doing okay. Yeah, yeah, we're doing all right. And of course, absolutely nothing. So um, I think I had like one audition in the first three months I was here and no money to pay rent. So I was like, okay, I need to get a job and wound up working as a, as a bartender at the National Theatre and uh, did that for a couple of months and then was playing this game of cricket, strangely, and this director was bowling and I was feeling it mid-wicket and I took this like fairly good catch, no, pretty, pretty good catch off his bowling. And after the game, he kind of gave me my first break. He said, look, I'm doing this rehearse reading at the Royal Court and I'd love to, for you to read. So... I was like, yeah, great, fantastic. And I was kind of over the moon because this was, it wasn't going to, you know, stop me from being a bartender, but it was going to give me my first acting job. People could see me and it was, it's a good credit, the Royal Court. So I do the reading and I finish the reading. I go to the bar and Mira Nair is there and she'd see she was in the audience. So I was like, oh my God, I, should I go up to her? And of course I did. And I was like, you know, Mira, I love your work. And uh, <laughs> I actually auditioned for a suitable boy, but I haven't heard anything. And she said, really, I haven't, se- I haven't seen your tape. Can you, can you send it to me? And then gave me her personal email. She was really lovely about it. And next thing I knew, she'd written back the next day saying, uh, loved your tape. Can you prepare these six scenes? She'd copied her a- assistant in, copied the producers in. And I met her at her hotel. Producer from the BBC was there. And it was already exciting. And then she sort of ended, I mean, she put me at ease. She like, you know, sat me down, talked to me about my journey to where I was and um, she read in Lata, which was lovely. And, and then I didn't hear anything. And the way it ended was, you know, you're fantastic, but you don't have much of a profile. And, you know, at the moment we're looking at a lot of actors. So I, I sort of left it. And then I got a job at the RSC quite quickly. So I wrote to her saying, you know, it, sh- it, it basically clashes with a suitable boy, but it's the RSC, it's the Royal Shakespeare Company. So I should, I shouldn't say no to it. I want to say yes. So I am going to say yes. And then the way I ended that email was, but Amit is very much in my heart. And then I got a response saying, you are very much in my heart for Amit. So it was kind of like a bit of serendipity. Yeah. But also the amazing thing was my grandparents gave me that book for my 15th birthday, A Suitable Boy. And it, the, the inscription was to our suitable boy. And I play one of the suitors. So it, it, it almost felt like it was meant to be. But it, and perhaps it was right place and right time. But coming back to, so, so all that was great. A Suitable Boy was great. The bits in between were, were tough, but you know, you kind of made it work. You, you did what you had to do to kind of wait for the right opportunity. And then we finished shooting A Suitable Boy. I did another play in between. So I kind of never went back to a bartending job or any kind of part-time job until 2020, which was when COVID struck. And then it was like, 
shit, will I ever act again? And I think most actors were out of work, whether you were Scarlett Johansson or whether you were Brad Pitt or whoever you, whether you were me or, you know, when, when there was lockdown, it was, it was quite serious. So, and then it stretched on and no one knew when it would end, how it would end. And then I, I realized I needed to do something else because, you know, it would just be impossible to, to sustain. And then I wound up getting a voiceover agent and started doing audiobooks. Okay. And that was just me picking up the phone. And this is not how you get an agent, apparently. But I was like looking up voiceover agents and I was like, who do I, uh, who do I you know, get in touch with? And basically there was this loud and clear agency and it said, call us for anything voice, you know, or something like that, or whatever, to talk, talk about voices or something. So I was like, great, I'll just call them. And it was actually for their clients, not for, I mean, it was, it was for the people interested in, in booking the, the talent, not for the talent. Talent to book themselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but anyway, so I basically picked up the phone and called them and they were very nice. And then we had a meeting and I wound up doing a lot of voiceovers, which saw me through the pandemic. And then I wound up getting House of the Dragon in April of 2021. It's a small part, but I'm, I'm in it. And then I got Good Karma Hospital. So it was, so things started rolling. And there wasn't periods of intense quiet, intense, like quiet that kind of leaves you with your thoughts and where the uncertainty suddenly takes over from the belief. Mm -hmm. So I think when things are going well, the belief gets stronger. When things are quiet, you do have days like, oh, is this all worth it? Is it all the sacrifices? Will I ever be able to own a house? Will I ever be able to have a family? Will I ever be able to, to do those things which require some kind of security and a fair amount of, you know, money and comfort and I suppose. But when you're in work, it's quite exciting to to dream even more. It's the yeah. bits in between where I think I've I have I mean I think everyone has found themselves worrying about it and whether it's it's ever going to happen. I think for me it's it's a combination of either letting go or picking oneself up or taking action or finding and this was what one kind of did in 2020 as well. We started writing, me and my partner. And she's, she's a fantastic writer as well. So that, that way you're kind of writing stuff that you know you can be a part of because you're writing, one, from your perspective, two characters you can play. And three, it gives you a sense of ownership over that journey, that story. And it's something I guess I always wanted to do. I was just quite lazy and and I didn't know whether I could but when you so that's the other thing I would say I, I we've started trying to make one's own, our own work yeah and the first step is writing it and I'm very good at like dreaming up ideas and stories and is is quite good at like putting paper, pen to paper but I mean we both write and we both go create it's 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 a it's quite a good partnership but I think that that's the other thing it's it's like when things aren't necessarily going your way what do you do to kind of keep yourself well afloat, which is perhaps one does have to get like, you know, uh, a side hustle of some sort. But also, how do you keep yourself creatively stimulated, I think? Mm -hmm. And that's, like, I think, a, a, the golden question for anyone in the arts. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's, it's about maintaining, or not maintaining even, but just asking or challenging yourself to kind of still stay creative. Yeah. And keep those juices kind of flowing. So I guess a long answer, very long answer to what you were talking about, but I don't think I ever give up on the fever dream. I think the one thing I'd always love doing and I, I've always loved doing and I think I always will is the, is the dreaming. Yeah. 
because I think that's where the power lies. In fact, even in acting, it comes. It's an it's an imaginative kind of process, which you kind of have to make physical and make reality. But I think it it can be hard, right. and I think that's the struggle. Is is you've got to accept that the struggle is part of the game. And actually, I wouldn't like it any other way. Okay. Uh, because if it was all too easy, then the challenge is lost, and the acting it becomes. I possibly less good. I think when you're when you're presented with a challenge of having to understand someone completely different from who you are, then that is in in that I feel like there's magic because not only do you recreate that, but if you can recreate that truthfully as as truthfully as you can recreate that, it'll be a brilliant performance or a performance that's worth watching, I think. As you were talking there, I, was, I do not care how long of an answer is first off, simply because I think all I try and capture with this, right, these conversations is like the honest truth of your lived experience and you talking about it. And I can, I don't know, man, the best way I can say it, I feel your love for the work that you do. It genuinely is that. And I hope for whoever is listening to this, I can, I genuinely hope you get some version of it. This is the part of the conversation I swear I will not edit a single second <laughs> of because it's like beautiful. And the part where you said, you know, you've, you've, the dreaming is the part of it. I mean, I am not an actor by any stretch. You could, I, I would demolish any role <laughs> in a bad way. <laughs> I don't give believe it to, that. Oh, yeah. I believe that. <laughs> trust me. Um, but I think my love for, in creativity is storytelling. And whether that's storytelling through a podcast, that's storytelling through getting a story on a stage or writing, I think it's, it's such hard work. And it's... I, I, I'm equally guilty of being the person that just like has 10 different wild ideas. And it's always good to dream and think of the ideas, but putting the idea on the paper mm. and that hard work of getting something through, it's challenging and it's difficult. But I am so glad for you that way. Like I, in, in hearing you talk about it, and this is something I've been very aware of, is like, I don't think I've been brave enough to commit to the art mm. as wholeheartedly as you have. And there's so many reasons to it. But at the same time, in hearing you talk about it and hearing your journey of it, it's just like, I don't know, it's inspiring. It really is. Because it would be so easy to take the easy route, mm. right? It would be so easy to have a job that doesn't fulfill you, but pays the bills. And then you spend time, you know, reminding yourself like, oh, you know, this isn't what I was compelled to do. But like, hey, I'm, I'm now driving an Audi, so maybe this is all right. And listen, comfort. Sure. Creeps into you. Sure. But I, and I, I, I will send this to you 10 years from now. And I genuinely, genuinely hope that when I send this episode to you a decade from now, like you've not only found the comfort, but you're even more fulfilled with the art that you're creating. Because I've only seen you in the one role, right? right? I haven't seen you in the play that you were doing. No. But you're fucking fantastic, mate. Oh, thank you. I, I really do it. believe it. Actually, I've seen you in two roles. I've seen you with the one in the House of the Dragon as well. Oh, right, yeah, so, yeah. But, but I think I, I genuinely, well and truly, I, 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 I really hope the best for you. Oh, thank you, Pran. No, and I'd love to listen to that and in 10 years' time and see, and not just compare notes. And I, I really hope that one is, you know, comfortable to some extent and one has the, the home comforts and all that. Mm -hmm. But actually artistically perhaps I don't want to be comfortable or yeah. too comfortable yeah. because I think there's a danger in in just sort of and I think I discovered that doing the play that goes wrong because I did 422 shows and then you know after show 250 you're kind of like 
you're definitely comfortable because your body could do it in the in your sleep. Yeah. But um, but the, I think I think you've still got to keep searching, and I think you've got to seek new things because if you very easily fall into the trap, which I'm very guilty, I think of 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 having done it. It it not only takes the joy out of it for you because you kind of just rest on your laurels, but when it's when it's live, I think it can also perhaps become stale and you don't ever want to do that. I think the, the, the amazing thing about live theater is you have a live audience that's new every day that kind of keeps you on your toes. You can't really let anything become stale. Yeah. But you'll be surprised because, you know, after like 250, 300 shows, you're kind of hitting a brick wall because you, you know exactly how it's going to work. And, you you know, if the audience isn't as reciprocal or as, isn't as alive or it, it, it can be hard work. But the point is you still have to kind of take the journey. Mm-hmm. And maybe change the route slightly, depending on how you're feeling, but end up at the same place, I think, because it is a story and, and you do want to get there. But I think that the, the ability to play actually becomes a lot more because you're so comfortable. Yeah. So it's, it's that weird balance. And I think acting is, it's, that's the amazing thing. I'm not going to claim to be the best actor in the world because I'm, I think I'm very far from it. I think I've got so much more to learn. And I hope that the opportunities come to teach me and to not just teach me, but help me learn for myself in a mm-hmm. sense, help me discover. And yeah. I think in that discovery is where the excitement, the magic, the passion, the, all of that is there, don't, no doubt. But I think it's just amplified. It, it becomes this amazing feeling when you kind of do hit it every now and again. Mm-hmm. And you might not know it at the time. I think you might also... It can it can come to you at, at different times. I mean, yeah. yeah. Anyway, yeah. And I think when you talk about that play, I mean, this, I'm, I'm again a cliche when I come to this, but like I think it's a marathon of a different nature. Yeah. And from what you're saying, it sounds, and I do, I think you will be the final, not just judge, but like have the final experience of what this play and that extended role and having the same role, you know, it's a lot of shows, man, 400 plus shows. That's a ridiculous amount of performances. Fair play. I think that endurance that you may have gained and the stamina to be in that artistic space, even when you're feeling depleted as a creative, I think will materialize in ways that I think you may have just started realizing, mm-hmm. but I think will stand to your testament as an actor to be able to, I mean, if you can commit to a role that you could do in your sleep, but then still have to bring life to, I'm I'm excited to see what happens when you, it's a, not, not just a role that you're excited by, mm-hmm. but just like then demands so much more energy out of you. Yeah. And I'm excited for your future as an actor. Oh, no, thank you. And I think there's also like that feeling of being able to have done it, to have been able to, you know, on the the flip side. Like, I think while you're going through it, you're probably like, oh, my God, I can't, my body can't do this, Mm -hmm. you know, because I'm I'm in so much pain. It's coming up to show eight. I've just, you know, I've got like a terrible cold, whatever it is. And and I'm, I'm absolutely knackered. I've done this seven times this week already and I've got show eight. And but the minute you go on stage, it's like... You don't have a choice, the, but but also I think there's a desire to perform. Yeah, and I think you know what what I used to do as well to kind of help was I used to try and dedicate a performance just before I go on stage to someone from my life, and sometimes from someone I, to, to someone I'd never met. So I'd go there's there's this church called the Actors Church in Covent Garden. It's St Paul's Church, but like. If I was early, I'd often go there and uh, there are all these names on plaques and I'd just pick a name and I'd go like, okay, this is for you. 
and whether they were around or not. But like, I think that kind of also helped me because it kind of made this a little bit more personal. Yeah. And I think that kind of, when you run out of ideas, you got to kind of scramble. But I think that was something that was quite useful mm-hmm. where I was, you know, whether it was a grandparent or whether it was, um, you know, someone who cared for me when I was young or, you know, it was just, just people who have been in my life or a best friend or whatever. I think yeah. that kind of helped. Yeah, it's interesting how, especially when the challenges strike up, how we have little ceremonies or like totems to, yeah, you know, spark ourselves up into action. Something again, I think I'm. I was very keen to talk about it on the podcast. Has been, I think it, it's going back to one of our conversations on the Heath was about how different and unique, but also thematically consistent, our experiences as men of color and like brown men and Indian men have been. And I think something you said was how like the accent I have has co-opted this need to assimilate through the different cultures that I found myself in. Mm. I think I'll ask you then as well, but I'm very curious to ask you now as well. As an actor, as a brown actor in a, you know, white majority country, Mm. but also an art that I think in the West has been dominated by race in a certain aspect. What has your experience been of roles? What has your experience been of being an actor and a brown actor in the UK? I think it's always interesting being the other, actually. I mean, it's not always easy, but it's definitely interesting because because I think it gives you a perspective that is more unique than other people's. And I think everyone's got their own perspective and it's all unique, but, but in the sense that it's an experience that not necessarily everyone has. So people of color people who, you know, don't conform to gender, all of that. I mean, I think we all understand it to some degree, but it's not the same degree. Yeah. And I think coming to this country and living in London, and London is, is an am- amazingly diverse, welcoming city, for me at least. And yeah, it, in my experience, it, it has been. <laughs> and I remember, but also I was quite naive. I remember at drama school, because I think you mentioned like the first time one felt like, you know, one didn't necessarily belong or one felt like the other. I remember it quite clearly in London because I was playing a game of cricket on a Sunday and I was coming back and I was dropped off to some station in like South London, like Clapham Junction or something like that. Mm. And I didn't know the station at all. And I was, you know, dragging my cricket kit and I went to the wrong exit gates. Instead of going to the entrance gate, I went to an exit gate. And this woman was coming out and she went, get out of the way, you And I was like, I'm Indian. The naivety was, my initial reaction was, I'm not Pakistani, I'm Indian. What the, you know, I mean, and of course, we all look the same to you. And, you know, it's very easy for us to go, oh yeah, white people are all the same, but, which is not necessarily fair either, because there is nuance in in each of us. But it was, it was that initial reaction where I didn't necessarily feel racially discriminated because I'd never heard actually the term before. And I just took it to mean, you know, uh, um, I'm Indian, you know, like that, that's who, who I really am. But that was, that was the first time I, and I think it only struck me a bit later in terms of what had happened. But I think feeling, look, I think that whether the, the, the acting industry, the, the film industry, the theater industry can do a hell of a lot more mm-hmm. to bring more diversity to the table, because I, I, I think there's a hell of a lot of ta- talent out there. But I think also we as a community need to, in a sense, make the cake bigger. Because if we continue this mindset of this cake is only going to stay this size and only a few people will get the nicest pieces of it, then we're allowing 
that to happen. And as a result, I think we're missing an opportunity to tell our stories. Now, don't get me wrong, it's not easy. I think the answer lies in one, strengthening our communities. Mm -hmm. I feel like we have a responsibility, not just to ourselves, but to other people like us, to, to the community, the larger community, to tell stories that matter, to tell stories that are our own. And I think there's a huge need for that because audiences also tire of seeing the same things. And I think it doesn't matter about color because also I don't think it's just, I don't necessarily only want to be known as an Indian slash British Asian or whatever South Asian actor. Yeah, I think you've got to bring out stories that are colorblind and you've got to cast it based on color or not on color basically. So colorblind casting is the way to go forward, I think. And, and as a result, opportunity does increase. And that has started to happen, but one would have thought it would have happened a lot faster right? because there was, there was a little bit of it starting to happen. And then I think the pandemic hit. Um, but having said that, you know, in the play that goes wrong, I was the first person of color to play Chris Bean, who's, you know, traditionally always been played by a white male. So, that, that, so there are steps and I think people are acknowledging that. And our cast, I think, had like a 50-50 person of color and, 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 and you know, white actors. And, and I think irrespective, I'm, it's not about, you know, comparing it to ev- everyone. I think it's a far richer story that we're telling when all of us are reflected in it. If, yeah. if we're going to just keep telling stories that are a bit, and I'm not even going to take that, are not just the same, but are of a similar nature yeah. or reflect a, a largely majoritarian community or a majority community. I don't know if I'm explaining this well enough, but I feel like that that's fine. And I'm sure there are great stories there. It's just not as inclusive. Yeah. And I think as a result, you're missing a trick because you can have it all. Yeah. And of course, you don't necessarily have to have only brown stories or only black stories or only East Asian stories. Yeah. I feel like the, in the world that we live in, it's, it's, it's very diverse anyway on a day-to-day basis. We mix yeah. in, we, you know, it's like a melting pot. It's, you know, that kind yeah. of thing. So, so perhaps that's not as articulate as I wanted it to be. But I think it is tricky being actor of color, I think. But at the same time, I hope that we can get to a place of equal, but not just equal, more opportunity. I don't think the answer can be articulated because I think it's, again, much like the answer, I think the nature of the field and the stories we're seeing, I think there's a lot of figuring things out and trying to understand how to do it. When you're talking, and it's so important, I think, you know, it's it's not just giving space for like, you know, a role that would have been for a white actor to a brown actor. I think that's a step in the right direction, but I think it's about having our stories seen in the world. And when we're talking about stories being seen, one of the most profound experiences, and you talked about Mira and I are there, my introduction to her was through Namesake. And I remember seeing that movie, I must have been what, 12, 13, mm-hmm. and coming across a story about a very Indian couple, a very immigrant story in New York and set in a time, you know, with real challenges. Mm-hmm. Profound experience on my teenage brain. Mm-hmm. And I think it informed a big way of like the kind of cinema I wanted to see and the movies I wanted to see. And I still hold it as one of the most incredible like cinemas that I've seen. And Mississippi Masala as well. Yeah. I don't know oh if you saw God, that. Oh my God, yes, yes. That, that, like oh, a young Denzel Washington and Sarita Chowdhury, I think. Yeah, okay. I, was, uh, I was talking about the Prince yeah. Charles Cinema. They did a screening of it last year around oh, Diwali. Right. Yeah. So if it's out again, I'll give you a shout. But yeah. again, yeah. Like, Brilliant. Yeah. An incredible, incredible work. Like telling our stories in a Western setting, which is important. Because, you know, like you said, you know, as both Indian men that have now moved abroad, 
London is a very melting pot of culture and like it's reflective of the relationships we have and the friendships we have and the kind of communities we surround ourselves in. The stories we see for our people of South Asian people, I think there's more of it now, but like we need more stories that capture the Desi experience, like yeah. what it's like being in a joint family. Absolutely. Um, what's it being like in, in, you know, as Indian men, as South Asian men or South Asian people communities in this, in this melting pot of a world. And I, I, I know we're getting there and I hope we're getting there in a more, I don't know, well-rounded and more artistically vibrant way. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, I believe, I genuinely believe, you know, not just say in South Asian movies, but like watching everything everywhere all at once. Mm-hmm. A movie about fucking multiverses. Yeah, I know. But having such a lovely like story about an immigrant family at the heart of it. Absolutely. That's what made it rich. It's not the multiverse. It's that heart of the story in between. And I think that's that's what we need more of. Absolutely. And I mean, we we could be here talking about it for ages, but I think it is, it is... Oh, it is so important because I want my kids to grow up in a world where like they can see characters be like, oh yeah, dad, I'm going to be an actor. It's like, oh yeah, talk to Uncle Mikhail about this. But also <laughs> like there yeah. is that hope, yeah. you know, you're not going to be cast here typically. Um, for, I, I could be here talking to you about all of this for ages, but I'm mindful of time. So I have two more questions for you. If you could go back to 10 year old Mikhail and you have 10 minutes with yourself, what do you say? I'd say don't be scared to admit that you want to be an actor. And don't be scared to be who you are, whatever that is, whoever that is. And I think I'd also say it's all going to be fine and it's all going to work out. And actually, you know, it never is the way you think it'll be, but it'll still be super fun and super exciting. And remember to just try and enjoy it all, I think. That's the key to all of it. And stay curious. Similar tangent. What is your hope for yourself? 10 years in the future. It's funny when you say that, because like the first person who comes to mind is Matthew McConaughey in his Oscar speech about how you should always chase your hero and your hero is you in five years. But ask me that question again, because I'd I'd rather come up with it on my own. What is your hope and dream for yourself 10 years from now? Personally, artistically, individually, where do you hope you are? I think my hope and my dream would be to have been able to have told several stories that have driven me and made an impact on lots and lots of people and moved people, inspired people, stimulated people to action and to contemplate their world and our world. And I would like to have done that through my acting, being and playing parts that kind of push the envelope and in some way make the world a bit more wholesome and a bit more inclusive and a bit more understandable and a bit more fun. Uh-huh. And I think also provoking people through those stories and not just as an actor, I think through writing it, through telling it, through doing podcasts, through, through any which way I think you see it. I think the point is to try and drive and make the work and the world that you'd like to envision. So if I can even do a little bit of what we talked about, I would feel like that's where I would want to be. And I would hope that I'm really happy doing what I do and staying alive and curious and excited about the future. And if I'm still there in 10 years, 
then I think I would be very happy. I, I hope for all of that and so much more for you, mate. Well and truly. I think, yes, there is a personal ambition and a personal dream and a personal sense of fulfillment absolutely there. And I think it needs to be there, but also in your hope and dream to have stories that are inclusive and that can weigh a bigger sense of the world. Being a part of it, I think it'll it'll come to pass. It's It's been lovely having this conversation. Oh, thank it you. really has been. And whatever I thought this conversation would be, I told, I, I said this to you, this is going to shoot off on tangents and I'm so, so, so glad that it did. Before we close shop and stop recording, where can people find you? What do you have coming on next? People can find me uh, on Instagram and Twitter. Twitter is probably better, but, okay. you know, I'm not big on social media. Yeah. But write to Pran and he'll he'll put yeah. us in touch. <laughs> I'll, I'll send you filmography. Yeah, Find yeah. Mikhail on IMDb. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, but yeah, exactly. Just you know, it'd be great. I'm very open, and I I think I think that's the other thing. I think if if there's any way one can help other people who have these dreams and ambitions in some way, I mean, I'm not going to guarantee that they'll you know I I can help that much, but even if it's just to have a conversation and listen and and maybe, you know, put people in touch with people or, you know, suggest, you know, places they can go to keep improving or training or, mm -hmm. you know, I, I'm very open to that. And I think that's the, that's the way we have to be to really help each other. And I think that's where the, f the future is. So it's about really connection and coming together. So I'm very happy to do that. Okay. Yeah. Well, Mikhail, it's been a pleasure having you. It's been you. such a pleasure talking to you, Pran. Thank you so much. This um, was, yeah, that's a privilege as well. Yeah. And uh, I'm sure we'll hear from you soon. Yeah. Cheers. Thank you. Thank you for listening to that episode. If you liked what you heard, do consider following us on social media and maybe even sharing the episode with a friend that you think would really enjoy this. We're a independent and small podcast, so every like and share really, really goes a long way. New episodes out in two weeks' time. Till then, this has been Love and Citizenship, and I will catch you in the next one. <laughs>